Welcome to the MoxieOT podcast, where we invite occupational therapy practitioners, consumers, and friends of OT to talk about evidence-based practice. Today we'll be talking to veteran of the podcast, Dr. Yevgenia Popova and Dr. Hannah Hart about their work at Gigi's Playhouse. Gigi's is a community-based setting that supports people with Down syndrome. Let's meet Jenny and Hannah. Today on the Moxie OT podcast, I'm excited to host returning guests, Dr. Yevgenia Popova, or Jenny, and Dr. Hannah Hartz. Today, they will discuss their role at Gigi's Playhouse. Gigi's Playhouse provides educational and career opportunities for people with Down syndrome across the lifespan. October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month, so we thought this would be a great time to learn more about this organization. Jenny wears many hats, including as a faculty member at the OT program at Rush University and is president of the board at Gigi's Playhouse. Hannah graduated from Rush University this summer with her doctorate in occupational therapy and completed her capstone experience at Gigi's Playhouse. Jenny and Hannah have been doing great things at Gigi's and I'm excited they're here to tell us more about this setting today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Moxie OT podcast. Thanks so much for having us. We're so pumped. Jenny, you're always up to so many interesting things. Can you tell us about what is Gigi's Playhouse and how you became involved with this organization? Yes, Gigi's Playhouse is a nonprofit organization for folks with Down syndrome. So we service anyone, anyone from before birth. Sometimes we have expectant mothers coming in and checking out the Playhouse um, all the way to older adulthood. Um, although our organization is specific to individuals with Down syndrome and their families, we don't turn anyone away as a result of their diagnosis. So um, we actually have some participants without Down syndrome that come out uh, for our services as well. One thing that's very unique about Gigi's is that it's 99% volunteer run and 100% free, um, which is, is very exciting and what originally drew me to this um, nonprofit, mostly because I just couldn't understand how in the world anyone could have an organization that is 99% volunteer run and 100% free. That sounds very expensive, especially in the city of Chicago. So I wanted to know more and uh, get involved and both help out, but also learn um, what makes the organization successful. And what I learned is the power comes in very much from the volunteer body and a lot of committed people um, that are not shy and are driven to do a lot of uh, fundraising and outreach. Um, the organization itself was huge. We're up to 54 playhouses nationwide. Wow. Last time I checked. <laughs> yeah, and we have one international location um, in Mexico. And it's been kind of fun to see the organization grow. Not actually kind of fun, extremely fun to see <laughs> the organization grow. And um, despite how challenging the pandemic has been, uh, very cool thing that has happened for us with our organization is that it allowed us to bring our services virtual as well as in person. And while we missed seeing all the smiling faces at the Playhouse, what was really cool is to see some participants dial in from um, like internationally. We had wow. students logging in from Italy. We had one uh, student that we lost touch with for the past two years because he moved back to Egypt and he was able to come back. Oh. And See, so, yeah, <laughs> it was very cool. Um, 
So yeah, that's a little bit about us. Chicago specifically, we've been around since 2008 um, and we actually moved in 2010 and reopened again and then closed our doors for remodeling in 2015. And so if you haven't seen us since 2015, come check us out. We're doubled in size, bigger than ever. <laughs> um, and we serviced well over 300, 500 families with Down syndrome in Chicagoland area and neighboring suburbs. So there's a lot of families that we work with and even more volunteers. We have thousands of volunteers in our database. Wow, that's amazing. And I, I do think that's volunteer organizations are very challenging to run, but there's a lot of power there. Um, and that it's that's so cool. I also love that. And I know we're going to get more into COVID later, but that is one of those small silver linings of COVID is that we did connect with folks maybe that you know like your your gentleman from Egypt who ha- hadn't connected in three years so that's cool well yeah Hatt- oh go ahead sorry oh nothing I'm just saying yes it's, it was very cool because <laughs> big mission for us is to send a message of acceptance and really provide access to services for free both therapeutic and educational and I feel like until COVID we didn't really realize the power of bringing in virtual programming yeah that's so cool so Hannah, I'm just so excited to welcome you to our profession and get to know you here today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to enter the OT profession? Of course, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, I think I always knew that I wanted to work in healthcare. I've just always had an interest in how the body works um, and helping others. And when I was an undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. and. I was shadowing up a storm and there just seemed to be a component missing. And I went into my advisor's office and to this day, I'm so thankful that I had an advisor that knew so much about occupational therapy Um, because I sat down with her and I was explaining, I was like, this is what I like about physical therapy. You know, I like learning how the body works. I like the rehab process, but there's just something missing. Um, I, you know, I want something that's more holistic, that's more creative. I want something that feels less prescriptive. And, you know, as I was sitting there telling her, you know, my hopes and dreams for this career that I didn't think existed, she just smiled and looked at me and was like, Hannah, you, you just described occupational therapy. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what that is. And so I went back to my dorm room and I researched a bunch and I was like, wow, I, I did just describe occupational therapy and the rest is kind of history. Um, I, you know, I started shadowing some OTs. I spent a gap year working at a therapeutic elementary school and was working with the OT team there. And that just kind of really solidified um, my desire to be a part of this profession. And I haven't looked back. (laughs) That's so cool. And kudos to that advisor. We definitely need more folks out there that understand what OT is. So Mm -hmm. that's a wonderful story. Well, welcome. Thank you. Jenny, your role at Gigi's Playhouse is as the board president, not as an OT. And yet you've developed plenty of uh, OT-informed programs for the Playhouse. Can you tell us more about your background as an OT and how it influenced this programming? Yes. um, I do think it's been hard for me to take off my OT hat no matter where I go. (laughs) I mean, I think Uh, that we, yeah, as OTs, like we're never not thinking like OTs. Yeah. So I think regardless, 
regardless of where I get pulled in, whether it's fundraising or social media or programming, I feel like I always have the OT lens. Um, my background, when I came into the Playhouse, what I thought I was going to bring was going to be a lot of programming for young children. My interest has always been in working with families and providing parent coaching. Um, as an early intervention provider, I thought this is where I was really going to shine and start out with. Um, and then to my surprise, what the Playhouse really needed was to start out a program for adolescents. And I said, well, all right. <laughs> Adolescents are a little bit different than babies, but I will figure this out. So uh, my very first programs at the Playhouse that I started um, as a programs chair way back in 2015 were specific to um, self-determination, promotion of life skills, collaboration, communication, interaction skills for adolescents with Down syndrome. And then six months or so later, I was able to bring my crawlers and walkers group into the playhouse and finally got to meet the babies. Um, so yes, I feel like the biggest skill set that I've been leaning into as an occupational therapist in my work at the playhouse is really just doing a lot of careful task analysis and thinking about how can we use and provide a supportive environment for the folks that come in through our doors. Um, as a nonprofit organization with limited resources and limited capacity to hire a full-time OT, I found that it's been very important for us to really focus in on using our skill set as OT volunteers um, and students that come in to work more on adjusting the environments, creating materials, providing education, and enabling the organization to infuse therapeutic elements um, into the day-to-day -day activities versus us coming in, providing direct service, and then kind of vanishing um, into the mist of unknown. Um, so that's been a lot of my focus on programming. And then now as president, I feel like I challenge myself to do the same thing. So ensuring that regardless of the committee, we're establishing processes that make sense, ensuring that regardless what we do, whether it's community outreach or press releases, um, writing grants, that we're working on these elements that we know is evidence-based practice for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and Down syndrome specifically. So now in my role as president, the bulk of my time is spent in looking for grants, doing a lot of fundraising, uh, doing a lot of outreach, um, and yet I still find ways <laughs> to sneak in my OT expertise in there. So if I ever go and present somewhere, I try to bring at least one intern with Down syndrome with me so that they can work on their leadership and public speaking skills. When I'm writing a grant, I always think about, well, what will the grant pay for? Um, but then also, how can I infuse a little bit of evidence-based practice. In fact, on Friday, we were looking up grants and they said that they pay for heavy machinery. And I'm like, well, we don't need any of that, but maybe we should ask them for a van. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to convince um, my site and program coordinator to, <laughs> to purchase a van for the organization. We'll see next week if they've caved or not. Because I was thinking, well, you know, that would allow us to actually go out into the community. And if we're doing a community-based outreach event, we can bring several interns with us versus just one. We would no longer have a 
transportation barrier when we're trying to do outreach on south and west sides of Chicago right now. We're currently on the north side and it's we're simply not accessible to many families that live in Chicagoland. So yeah, bring um, the program to them. That's awesome. I know. So I don't I don't think they fully bought the van idea. <laughs> but but they did say probably next year. That sounds, you know, so I'm like, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, sometimes we have to like remember it's small steps. Yes, exactly. As an OT, right? We just got to plant that seed. Um, So doing a lot of those elements and an interesting thing that actually I feel like my OT training gave me that I'm able to bring as um, a leader within this leadership position is actually a solid grounding and community-based mental health, especially amidst COVID. It's been so so important for me to not just bring in my knowledge in program development and evaluation, but also how do we promote just well-being um, in both ourselves and the people that we work with. So I've been challenging myself to think about, okay, well, I know about positive psychology. I know about positive affirmations. Can I sneak some of that in into my meetings and board retreats? (laughs) Um, And that's been quite great as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that often we need to remember as OTs that we are mental health professionals and and that every population that we work with, you know, has mental health. So I love that. And, you know, I also think it's, we undersell ourselves as OTs on the power of task analysis and what we can bring to any organization. Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like how we sort of envision it in OT is watching someone make a meal or something, but what does this big picture look like and how can we um, make it more inclusive? I love that. And thinking about that and, um, you know, Jenny, you and I are both educators and we're always thinking about how can we increase our fieldwork and capstone opportunities in community-based settings. And you've done a great job with that at Gigi's. So can you tell us about how you've involved your students at Gigi's? Uh, yes. And thank you for the shout out for that. Um, it's been, it's been quite an interesting thing. I think I come at it from both lenses. One, as a representative of Gigi's, we need more volunteers, especially with strong buy-in. Um, and students are an awesome population for that. Students are most amongst the most driven population of human beings I have ever met. Um, they have, no time in a day to do anything because of all the school commitments and yet they still find time and make time for service and volunteerism which is awesome Um, and then as an educator also thinking about opportunities of how do we bring in more experiential learning and transformative learning opportunities for our students it's hard to take abstract concepts that we learn in ot school and really bring them to live simply using our imagination, right? Yes, right. especially <laughs> um, when you've never seen it before, yeah. Exactly, so um, thinking about that, right, the organization needs, thinking about that just right challenge, right? Well, this organization desperately needs people that are skilled and motivated and interested in learning. The education system needs more opportunities for for students to come out and actually bring some of these skills to light. So since 2015, I've been trying to bring in more and more little pieces of um, 
internships and volunteerism, we have a lot of undergraduate students who are interested in doing clinical supervision and get some of their volunteer hours and prep for OT school. We collaborate with a variety of schools, including UIC and Rush in taking level one fieldwork students, which has been awesome. Um, and um, again, another silver lining of COVID, we had an awesome opportunity to take some level two students, which has been completely incredible. Um, it's amongst our highest rated one-on-one -on -one sessions is provided by level two students. All the parents always email us, <laughs> when are you going to get more fieldwork students? I'm like, well, it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> I don't, I can't just like make them emerge. <laughs> um, and then now as more and more programs are moving toward doctoral level, Capstone students has been just absolutely amazing. Um, I find that our capstone students bring in some very fresh energy and new ideas and literally full-time commitment <laughs> to yeah. make their big ideas happen. Um, and that's been, that's been awesome. We've grown a lot since our very first capstone student, I think two years ago, um, our playhouse looks completely different every single time a new capstone placement is done. That's so great. And I can't wait to hear about one specifically. Hannah, can you tell us about your capstone? Of course. Um, so I worked with kind of the school age population. Um, so I designed and implemented a parent child yoga class um, for kids ages three to 12 with Down syndrome and their parents. And the program really aimed to enhance occupational participation, parent child mental health, and just parental self efficacy. Um, and I should mention that I'm also a yoga instructor, so that really helped with the design and the execution of my program. But uh, the program that I designed was individual sessions. So each session um, was an hour long and we worked on skill development, um, thinking about mindfulness and deep breathing in addition to movement-based activities and really focused on kind of building um, these skills that could then be carried over at home into routines to just promote um, self-regulation, to promote mental health. Um, and so each session there was, you know, movement and there was breathing and there was dancing and all sorts of fun stuff. And then it ended, we wrapped up each session um, with some parent coaching. Um, and I gave parents handouts covering all the topics that we had talked about for the day and kind of some homework exercises. Um, so trying to work in some of the skills that we had just learned in the class into their home routines. So for example, we talked about using our senses as a way to practice mindfulness when we're outside, thinking about what we can smell, what we can see, what we can hear. Um, and then I asked them, you know, when you're spending time outside, if you go for a walk, if you go to the park each week, use this skill that we just talked about in class and try it out. Go for a five senses walk at home and come back next week and tell me how it went. Or we, um, we would use like a book in the, in the class and we would read the story and every time there was an animal in the book, we would move our bodies to make it look like the animal moved. And so then I was like, try this at home. You know, when you read a book with your kid at home, if you see an animal on the page or something on the page that looks like a shape you could move your body to do, try that. Um, and so just really um, promoting, you know, interacting with their child in a playful manner, a playful manner while 
um, using these skills that we were talking about each week in, in our classes together. Um, and then another aspect, I feel like my project just continued to get bigger and bigger the more we planned it. Um, but then we were fortunate enough to be grant funded. And so then I had two interns join me. And so I had two young adults with Down syndrome who helped facilitate my program and they acted as peer models um, for, for the children in the program. And so there was kind of two parts to their internship. They came for the yoga classes and they helped me um, facilitate those. And with each week of their internship, they kind of took on more responsibility with you know demonstrating things or leading certain parts of the class. Um, but then they also came for their actual intern shift where we talked about job skills and goal setting. And we used the co-op model to um, kind of the goal plan, do check cognitive strategy. Um, and then they also were able to work through an online training to become children's yoga instructors. Um, so that was a really amazing outcome for the end of their internship to wrap up and be like, hey, now, now you can teach yoga in your community. Um, I love so. that so much. <laughs> That's so cool. And, you know, Hannah, I just think that I'm just hearing like so many important pieces like homework. That's an important piece. Right. And that um, ability for the parents to see why this is important and, and some outcomes. And then the, the training for the interns, they had an actual product at the end. Right. They became mm -hmm. yoga instructors. That's just that's so meaningful to our folks. So um, also just like side note. So many OTs are yoga instructors. <laughs> There's this cool intersection there. Um, we'll definitely have to do a yoga and OT episode one of these days. Yeah, that'd be so fun. <laughs> awesome. And so how has COVID impacted the programming at Gigi's? Well, COVID impacted our programming tremendously. And I'm sure the listeners and you all remember how in March and April, we were all just kind of sitting at home hugging our toilet paper and waiting for everything <laughs> to go back to normal. Um, and I don't remember what exactly changed our minds at the, oh, actually, you know what? I do remember what changed our minds at the Playhouse is that every single year World Down Syndrome Day happens on March 21st. And it is a promise of our Playhouse to our volunteers and families that no matter what, even a pandemic, there will be a party. Oh, cool. <laughs> so despite the world more or less falling apart on us, we still committed to having a big old-fashioned Gigi's Playhouse party for World Down Syndrome, which went virtual. And as scared as we were to have this like virtual dance party over Zoom, which now like, of course, like, yeah, why wouldn't you have a dance party over Zoom? Back then, it was a really scary, but the party went extremely well. Our participants were so engaged. They were so happy to see one another. There was nearly 100 people on a call um, chatting and not wanting to leave afterwards. And we said, you know what? Whatever. We're just going to try this whole virtual telehealth thing. I mean, like, how bad can it be? So very early in the process, I believe in May, we started rolling out virtual services, which was extremely fortunate, extremely scary, but also extremely fortunate because it gave us quite a bit of time to um, figure out how to best provide virtual groups. What, do, what are some essentials that we need for optimizing our one-on-one -on -one virtual tutoring sessions? So the 
the whole COVID situation has been hard because it very much impacted the way that we deliver services, but it also inspired us to transition to a virtual program offering and allowed us to maintain our services even amidst the pandemic. Plus, uh, those of you in education and of course the students going through this, as we all remember, fieldwork placements were just like falling through the cracks, yes. right? There's like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for us as an organization, we're like, well, we don't know how to do telehealth. What, there's students out there that need full-time jobs? Come on over. <laughs> Uh, so we were very lucky to take some um, level two students from UIC who pretty much helped us transform our literacy and math virtual tutoring. We're able to develop some initial program materials that we still use now to date. Um, and then as our capstone and other fieldwork students came on, they continued to build and redesign our programs. So now we have a really strong program offering that we're able to deliver not only in person, but also virtually. And in fact, we have some groups that I think will never transition back to being in person because they draw in such a huge uh, diversity of people that may not have access to our services um, in person due to transportation needs. So we have a self-advocacy group, like a peer-led self-advocacy group for young adults with Down syndrome that I believe we're gonna continue keeping virtual because adolescents and adults with Down syndrome are able to log in, even if they're in the suburbs or in a different state. Uh, we have an awesome journal club uh, that's led on Fridays and it provides an awesome opportunity for people to practice their lit, uh, digital literacy and computer skills through virtual means. So I think we're going to be keeping that one virtual as well. So there's been a lot of pretty positive highlights for programming. Um, I would say the biggest negative impact has been just the difficulty of trying to find funding. Um, that's been probably the hardest, hardest part of the past two years. And like Hannah men mentioned we have been very fortunate in being able to secure several grants amidst that, um, but also recognizing how hard the financial state has been on all the nonprofits out there. For sure, for sure. Now, Hannah, did you get an opportunity to use telehealth during your capstone? I did, yeah. And I think had COVID not happened, I never would have considered telehealth to be part of my project design. Um, but I gave families the op the option. Um, I said, we can either meet in person or we can um, meet virtually. And I had one family who met with me virtually, not not because they weren't comfortable coming into the playhouse, but because of their distance. And they said, you know, since we used to be really involved in GGs and we've now moved out to the suburbs and it's just not feasible for us to commute into the city for a weekly program, but if you're gonna offer it virtually, we would love to attend. Um, so that was a really positive silver outline uh, to, to COVID happening. Um, I also think, you know, before COVID hit, I had been planning to have my program be a group program. And I think my program would have looked really different had it been led as a group, I think we would have been able to work on some more like social interaction skills, but I think we would have really lost that like parent child relationship aspect that ended up being so important to my program. Um, and we were just able to, you know, I had somebody as young as three and I had somebody as old as 12 in my program. And had we had it as a group, 
that wouldn't have been possible. So I kind of have COVID to thank for the success of my program because it pushed me to, to run individual sessions. And as busy as I might have been this summer running all those individual sessions, it was well worth it. That is a lot. And it's more time consuming, right? When it's individual yeah. sessions versus group. Um, I think Jenny and I are both huge fans of group programming. But um, that's, that's you know, it sounds like maybe that individual is the perfect fit for your program. So that's awesome. And I, you know, I guess that's a, this is a great moment to reflect on how flexible we've all been forced to be and how, you know, I mean, telehealth is something that I have wanted to learn about for a long time. And to create more virtual opportunities in my classrooms and it just felt way too overwhelming and suddenly there was no other option. <laughs> and, you know, kudos to Gigi's for inviting the fieldwork students in to come help figure it out. I do think that some places, and I totally get why, but we're like, we're just trying to figure this out. We can't deal with the student also, but to just give the students that extra responsibility, I think is, it's a push that, it can be, you know, scary, but helpful for our students. Totally. I'm pretty sure what we were telling the fieldwork coordinators at that time is we have no idea what we're doing and we're working very, very hard to figure it out. So if you have students that are not afraid of total chaos, we are welcoming them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does take, you know, some self-awareness to just be able to jump in there and <laughs> be okay with, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, total fearlessness. <laughs> yes. Well, I think we've talked about um, the next question on my list is what are some of the skills OTs bring to community organizations or nonprofit organizations? Are there any that maybe we haven't highlighted so much yet? Honestly, I think the biggest one is just to no surprise to you, I'm sure. <laughs> just the focus on occupation. It's it, as weird as it sounds, when you're strapped for resources and time and people power, I find that it's really easy to forget the importance of just integrating hands-on experiences for people to practice and um, learn various skills. Uh, for example, a big element for me since 2015, ever since I started meeting our adolescents, has been to try and get some funding to employ an intern, an employee with Down syndrome as part of our playhouse. And looking at opportunities for people to get involved in employment settings um, when they have an intellectual or developmental disability such as Down syndrome, you'll see that a lot of training programs are didactic. And there's still classroom-based experiences to try and teach people time management to try and teach people how to stay organized, how to do their laundry, how to clean up, how to make their own meal. And it's interesting to me how much we move away, even as OTs, as OT volunteers, how tempting it is to move away from just doing the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> to so like, true. to like talk about cleaning an apartment instead of just <laughs> cleaning to talk about how delicious tacos are instead of actually figuring out how to make that taco. Um, and the biggest skill that we've been challenging ourselves, both me challenging myself and the volunteers challenging themselves is to really bring back that element of occupation and to take away that, um, 
that element of like having to play pretend in our programming and actually just do the real thing. So even if it's virtual, right? If it's a virtual art class, let's send art supplies to our participants and let's just draw and share the picture. If we're cooking, let's actually cook and have someone teach us how to make their favorite meal at home and we all will replicate it. At the playhouse, if we want the participants to get better at cleaning, let's just have a cleaning day at the playhouse and just all clean together. Um, so I would say that as OTs, that's our biggest skill set. And even when we're serving in a role of volunteers or consultants, we can still bring that in to inspire imagination and nonprofits on how they can provide these lived experiences and hands-on learning opportunities for the members they serve. Because I don't think that every uh, profession comes in with that unique lens on how to help people just do the thing. And right, think- we're the experts. <laughs> we are the experts on doing the thing. Yeah, and it's so powerful. And I think sometimes we let that piece of identity go for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, and I would love to see more OTs get involved in nonprofit settings, even if it is just to let people know that yes, it's okay to just do it. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it, it can be very challenging, you know, like you can feel very prepared if you can walk in with your curriculum and you've got 10 worksheets to get done that day, you know, versus that chaos of it's a cleaning day. (laughs) Everyone go find a broom, you know, and as OTs, I think once we get in that occupation-based role, it, it starts to flow and we're like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing here, but it does feel less uh there's more up in the air of what's going to happen totally i mean it is so much easier to put a slide deck of like professional dress versus non-professional dress it's a whole other ball game to have like a professional dress catwalk right or like a fashion show or like i love that and i think it's at the at the end of the day it does take a little bit more time right but we don't have to put all of these elements together within a single session, right? Again, going back to your point of like task analysis. Well, yes, if it's gonna take us three days to plan it, why don't we just make it a three day group, right? And right? like with the people, <laughs> like we don't have to do it at night, at midnight, right? I don't have to sit there and plan this out. I can plan it out as part of my group process and uh, build on those process skills, right? And planning, yeah. et cetera, right, right in the moment. I think that's such a good point is that we don't always tap into that. We've got people power right there in our participants. Um, I love that. I love that important lesson right there. Um, So these are all really great examples of how OTs can incorporate their skills into settings um, with that. We might not have the title of OT or we might be a consultative OT. Um, If OTs are interested in working in the community or a nonprofit, how do you think they might get started? Um, probably the easiest thing is just to start volunteering. I cannot imagine a single volu- uh, organization that takes volunteers that would turn an OT down. Um, and I think just getting involved in a small way to go to a volunteer orientation, help out at a clean day, or go and do a tour of an organization. I think the more we build these connections, people will find a way to bring them into their organization. I know a lot of us in OT are also looking to build out our expertise in like leadership and management and nonprofits are a great way to be able to do that. Uh, So many 
nonprofits this year have experienced huge turnovers in their boards. Um, for us at the Chicago Playhouse, we were very fortunate to grow our board and not lose any members, but that is very much a, an exception and not the role in, within a nonprofit setting. So if there is OTs that are interested in being able to volunteer their time and get involved in a committee or board position, that is such a powerful way for us to not only bring our expertise as occupational therapists, but also influence the organization from a bigger picture, right? We don't always have to be those direct service providers. And it does pain me to say that because it is probably the most fun part of our job, right? It's like getting in there, like doing the thing, but we can get involved and help out even bigger by serving on committees, mentoring students, providing trainings, um, and I do find that that's what helps us at Gigi's really move forward because whenever we have students come in, whenever we have um, therapists volunteering, we ask them to take on those mentorship leadership roles, uh, both to grow themselves as professionals, but also help the sustainability of the program. I think those are just really great examples of how OTs can get involved. And I think I, could, I see this like top, I hate to say top down because that gets us thinking about regular OT, but, you know, coming from the top, it's like a board position or committee position. And then also like that grassroots, like I'm sure if you volunteer as a cleaner, you know, or a room volunteer or something, you're going to start to see how, you know, you some more occupation can be infused in here um, and, you know, maybe provide that consultative lens. So, um I think those are great ideas. Well, Jenny and Hannah, I know you, as we said, you've done a lot of great work at the Playhouse. Are there any success stories you'd like to share with us? I would say the biggest success story that we've had has been building out our internship program. And I would say Hannah's experience at the Playhouse is a stellar example of that. So I would love for her to share the story of her summer intern. Yeah, um, I had a summer intern who just, they had experience in yoga before. Um, they did yoga weekly. Um, and so it became, it was something that was already a big part of their life. And they were very excited to be able to then share it um, and really just took all aspects of uh, the training head on and got very excited about being able to be a yoga teacher. And they finished their training and are now teaching yoga to the younger kids at the Playhouse every Wednesday night, um, leading a program, um, which is just awesome because we haven't had really like participant led programming prior to this. Um, and this this intern also like throughout their internship this summer, like authored a a book, wow. like, um, you know, in our, in part of our, uh, yoga sessions, we had this idea of these like simple yoga stories as a easy, tangible way to teach different yoga poses to kids and get them just engaged in moving their bodies and getting them from sitting down to standing up. And this intern just loved this concept and started writing all these yoga stories and then even like went on vacation and came back and was like, I wrote these stories while I was on my drive, <laughs> like was just inspired by his environment. And so we've now put together, I want to say like 10 or 15 of his stories and we're going to, you know, get those printed and have them as a resource at our, 
at our playhouse. Um, and just seeing his growth throughout the summer has been tremendous. And, you know, being able to see, see him take leadership and be like, I'm going to run this class. Like, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> it's all me. Um, has been really awesome. That's a, that's incredible. That empowerment of having that role and then moving forward and being an instructor, not just an intern, you know, and creating a physical product of a book, like what confidence building experience, you know, yeah. it's just so cool. Yeah. And you bring up empowerment too. I had, as part of my project, I was able to interview all of the parents at the end of the program. And they all really talked about just how empowering it was to have this intern be a part of their experience and kind of reassured them of, you know, what their children are going to be able to be capable of and what their children's futures look like. Um, and so that was a really cool aspect, you know, to be able to pair this um, older adult with um, these younger kids and build those relationships. And now, you know, now these younger kids come to the playhouse and they know the the interns and there's this connection and this sense of camaraderie and it's just yeah. been awesome. That that power of peer leadership is absolutely incredible. And um, because you have all ages at Gigi's you've, and now you've got this internship program, I see where you're going, Jenny, like this is building and you know, you're going to have your, you're going to be developing your volunteer base through your, your participants. And that's so cool. I think um, a lot of times is as OTs, we push people to do better every day, right? And yet, I do think sometimes we put people into boxes that are a lot smaller than their actual potential. And this intern this summer very much reminded me of that. We were um, just chatting and um, had some visitors from UIC, actually, the department head from UIC visited, and some other faculty. And Hannah, Hannah and I were just talking about the internship, and they asked, Sam, like, Sam, what did you learn? He said, you know, I learned yoga and, you know, a couple of other factors. And he's like, and I learned how to write goals. And people are like, okay, so what kind of goals you do you write? And he's like, well, you know, I write smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. <laughs> yeah, I should have a master's degree in occupational therapy, right? <laughs> and I, I was like, what is what is happening? <laughs> Did you just spit it out like that? He was so confident in it, right? And I'm, I'm like, Sam, do you know when I learned that? And he's like, when did you learn that? I'm like, I learned that when I was working on my PhD. <laughs> with this person standing in the room with the department head. <laughs> I'm like, Yolanda taught me this. <laughs> I know, I'm like, I think I need to bring Sam into my classroom this year. Um, and I was so impressed. And I think sometimes we underestimate how much power just going through the process, right? Hannah did not, Hannah's goal was not to teach Sam what a smart goal is. Uh, at the same time, she also challenged herself and Sam to learn goal writing the way that anyone in OT would learn goal writing by writing a smart goal. And he was able to memorize that and not only memorize it, but be able to spontaneously use it in his everyday life, which is just the coolest thing. I, mm -hmm. I literally could not believe it. I think my jaw dropped. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And what a what a great moment to just kind of like let your old mentor see what great things you've been doing. <laughs> oh. 
Well, Jenny and Hannah, uh, at the Moxie OT Podcast, we always want to make sure we provide an opportunity for our listeners to increase their moxie. So if an occupational therapy practitioner wanted to know more about working in settings like Gigi's, what resources might you recommend they check out? There's quite a few resources available through AOTA on community-based practice, and we've been fortunate enough to write uh, an SIS quarterly article on that, um, on what we do at the Playhouse, specifically program development and evaluation for all of the program development geeks out there. Um, There is a great SIS quarterly article on our program, Art Explosion, and how we did that. Um, I very much hope that our capstone students, wink, wink, and Hannah will publish their work. (laughs) So there will be even more resources out there on how to make some of this nonprofit magic happen. Um, But yes, I would say AOTA is probably one of the best go-tos for us. That's great. And I will link to those resources on our website. And Hannah, I will be watching for that publication. All right. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this fascinating conversation with Dr. Eugenia Popova and Dr. Hannah Hartz about their work at Gigi's Playhouse. We're having a lot of great conversations about community-based OT here at Moxie OT, which has me diving into the evidence. A very helpful article I just read was by Braverman and Suarez Belcazar about social justice and OT's role in community-based organizations. I thought it was particularly helpful that they provided two case examples of how OT can support social justice within community-based organizations. The authors suggested using the model of human occupation to promote independence and make resource distribution recommendations. We'll have links to this article and all of the resources our guests discussed on the Moxie OT website. If you want to be a part of the conversation, leave us your email address at our website. We're on all of your favorite social media channels as well. If you want to be a part of the conversation, leave us your email address at our website. We're on all of your favorite social media channels as well. If you found something helpful today, leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps others to find us. The Moxie OT podcast was recorded in our home in the Avondale neighborhood of Chicago. This episode was produced by Brian Zira. Our intro music is courtesy of 13 Taco Studio. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.